welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder, murder. Hey, Laura. Boy, we have a very interesting and troubling case for our listeners this week. It's a Yale case, and it's disturbing on several different levels. It was December 4th, 1998. Suzanne Joven was a German-born senior at Yale University. Suzanne was exhausted. She'd just finished her senior thesis about Osama bin Laden. At about 9.30 p.m., Suzanne was seen leaving the Yale campus for some well-deserved rest. 25 minutes later, Suzanne was found two miles away, brutally stabbed 17 times, and her throat was slashed. Given the level of overkill, whoever murdered Suzanne had a huge amount of rage. So who was Suzanne? Suzanne Joven was born January 26, 1977 in Göttingen, Germany. She was by all accounts a strong, intelligent, kind, and generous young woman. Suzanne had been raised with a certain amount of privilege, but her parents always encouraged to use it for good to help humanity. And I love this, Laura. Suzanne grew up in a 14th century castle in Bavaria. And really, we've scoured the internet looking for photographs for this place. I don't know if the listeners know, but I grew up in an old monastery in Ireland. And it sounds really glamorous, and it's very memorable, but it was very cold and crumbling and not very comfortable. So I wonder if Suzanne grew up similarly anyway. So Suzanne had traveled all over Europe. She spoke many languages. Her family would vacation in Mexico. And Suzanne really followed in her parents' footsteps at Yale. And she started out in science. I guess both of her parents are scientists. Also, her mother had gone to Yale. So Suzanne was a legacy there. Along the way, Suzanne switched to political science and international affairs. And Laura, I find this really fascinating. Her thesis was on Osama bin Laden, and this is back in 1998. And it's so interesting to me that this was 13 years before the 9-11 attacks. Really would love to find her thesis and what were her thoughts on this man that would really shape the 21st century, the beginning of it anyway. Not in a great way, but whatever, we'll leave that one alone. Anyway, she just sounds so cool. And just even just looking at her picture, She's got this wit, 
humor, intelligence, beauty. She sang with rock bands at Yale. She's full of life. And already at that age, at that young, tender age of 21 years old, she was already really accomplished and sort of independent. And we are so honored to welcome Allison Williams and Maggie Damron from the Coffee and Cases podcast. These guys do an incredible job, thorough job of covering cold cases. So we thought they would be the perfect match for this case because unfortunately, the Joven case is still a cold case. And we feel it could have been solved, it should have been solved, and it wasn't solved. So welcome, guys. Hello. Hey. So you're from Coffee and Cases podcast. And that's right. And you guys, you guys really look at cold cases mostly. Mm -hmm. We do. Mm -hmm. Mostly uh, lesser known. Lesser known. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great to know. And it, just having your input into this is, is really valuable to us. In this case, interestingly, it's not a very high profile case, even though it is a Yale case and you would think it would be a little bit more high profile, but it really isn't. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll get it some attention by talking about it. Let's hope. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we entitled this case, the Yale cold case that should have been solved, because as we'll see, as we go through it, this is a case I think that could have gotten solved with the right attention on mm -hmm. it. So let's go back to that night. It's December 4th. It's 1998. As we mentioned, Suzanne has had a full day. And let's go through the timeline, basically, of what happened that day. So I think, and this is a bit different than a lot of the cases that Maggie and I cover, it tends to be the fact that with a lot of the lesser known cases, we don't really have as mm -hmm. many details as we do in this case. Oh, and so okay. I think it's great that we can kind of piece together her last hours. I mean, almost to the minute. Obviously, it was around 4.15 to 4.30, I believe, when she had taken her senior thesis to her advisor, uh, one of her professors at Yale, James Vandeveld, to get some feedback on it. She had dropped it off, and she had then headed to a pizza party with a Best Buddies program, which I had never heard of. Had you guys, is that something that yes. you guys were familiar yeah. with? I think it's more of a, like, Tom Brady. Yeah, it's very big in Boston. Is it like a big brother, big sister program yeah. thing? No, no, it's more for people with mental challenges. And mm -hmm. developmental disabilities. A lot of mm -hmm. people with Down syndrome on the spectrum, different developmental disabilities. They partner with people. And so this was a pizza party that Joe right. was putting yes. on. Yes, but a lot of New England athletes are involved in the program. So it's something we hear gotcha. about a lot in New England. Right. And I believe by her senior year at Yale, she was the chair or director of the Best Buddies program. And so she had borrowed a car from Yale so she could drive some of the individuals to the Best Buddies pizza party, which started at six at Trinity Lutheran Church. And then she left the party around 830 to go back to her place that was on Park Street and returned the car at 845. So again, and we know almost to the minute different things that are happening and Immediately after that, of course, she went back to her place after dropping the car off and some friends were walking by. They 
saw her in her window between 840 and 850. And I guess I'm picturing, you know, one of those where you're throwing rocks at the window or you're doing something to get someone's attention. And they say, we're headed to the movies. But she was, like Sarah said, she was exhausted. She had just worked on this paper. It's near the end of the semester. And so she said, you know what, I'm going to pass. I need to work some more on this essay. Around 9.02, we know she sent an email to a classmate who was asking to borrow a book to study for the GRE. And in this email, which I know we'll get into later, she said something like, well, I let someone borrow my GRE study book. I'll get it back. I'll put it in the foyer for you. And then gave the passcode to get in. And she logged off of her computer around 9.10. She had dropped the car off, but she needed to return the keys to the car. And so around 9.22, she was walking to return the keys. She actually passes by classmate Peter Stein. And she was near, from what I read, Yale's police office, which was at the Phelps Gate on College Street. So we even know kind of where she is geographically. And she said, she's going to take this key back and then I'm going to crash. I'm so tired. I can't wait to climb into my bed. And he said she wasn't holding holding anything other than a few sheets of, of white paper. That was all he really kind of noticed. She didn't seem anxious. She wasn't concerned about anything. About five minutes later, between 925 and 930, she was seen again walking toward Elm Street. And this eyewitness, who didn't know Suzanne, just recalled seeing a woman of her description with a Hispanic or Black man in a hooded sweatshirt walking in front of her and a blonde man with glasses dressed nicely walking behind her. She was seen by other eyewitnesses again in that same five-minute time frame, 9.25 to 9.30, walking north, continuing on College Street. And what's interesting is she told Peter Stein that she was exhausted, that she couldn't wait to get back. She just needed to turn the keys in. And yet, from everything I've read, she's kind of walking in kind of circuitous path, I guess, if that was her her plan was to go immediately back home. So this I, is kind of out of the way. Right. The comment that's made is that she's not walking in the direction that would be logical to go back to her house. Right. Like right. going north on College Street was going away from where her apartment was on, on Park right. Ave. She could have been meeting somebody. Yeah. Right. I know sometimes I'm so tired. Like when I get off work, I want to go in, but it's just my body can't get out of my car and I just need a minute to collect myself. So maybe she was like, you know what? I'm just going to take the leisurely way home. Or maybe she felt she needed to avoid someone. So she's going around a different way. Yeah. But it contradicts what she tells Peter Stein though, which is like, oh my God, I'm so exhausted. I can't wait to get home and and get some rest. You know, Mm -hmm. because earlier that day she had filled out grad school applications. She'd gone to this pizza party. Anybody doing also like a dissertation or, or a thesis, you know that they've been like living on like fumes and mm-hmm. coffee. Oh, basically. right. Yeah. So it is a little odd that she's heading in a different direction, I think. And so one of those witnesses who saw her again in that time frame around 930 had just left the Yale-Princeton hockey game and was headed to an off-campus party. And then from there, we know that less than 30 minutes later, so around 955, She was nearly two miles away and 
the two who came upon her, I think she was still alive at the moment they came upon her. But by the time first responders came to the scene, which was only about three minutes later, she was already deceased. And I know that in their investigation, I guess, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but obviously they're thinking about motive. And here's a woman who's still fully dressed. She's got her jewelry still on her. And so already, I think we're questioning, okay, who could have done this? How did she get this far from where she was just seen by eyewitnesses? And for what purpose? Because obviously it doesn't seem that this was sexually motivated or monetarily motivated. It's true, but she was stabbed 17 times. Yes, I was just going to say that. That's a very personal. It's a very rage-filled attack. You know, her throat has been slit. There's part of a knife that is recovered that's been lodged in her skull, like part of a knife, edge of a knife got nicked off in her skull. And she's two miles away from her apartment, which was at 258 Park Street. When the police get there, what do the witnesses tell the police? Well, so there were many accounts, actually, of people who had heard a couple arguing in front of some kind of luxury apartment complex. And so that had drawn a lot of attention, this couple arguing. And actually, the two individuals who were out for an evening walk who happened upon Suzanne's body, one was, I believe, a medical student, and they had heard a scream which was what drew them to the area. So the people arguing are not Suzanne and potentially someone else. These are two different people. I don't think we know. And it may be that it was the altercation that ended Suzanne's life, but somebody Mm -hmm. took it to be a couple arguing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be weirdly coincidental if there was happened to be a a couple arguing in the area. It's possible. Absolutely. When the police get there, they find Suzanne, they talk to the witness. Obviously, they get Suzanne to the hospital immediately. But I think she was actually dead. I think they said that the time of death was like 943. It indicates that there was a a scuffle. She was even dead when she had been found, essentially. Mm. One of the sources I read, I'll have to find it, but I thought it said that they believed, at least initially, maybe when they called, that she was still alive. But but in several of the sources that I read as well, and what I think is interesting about her injuries is you guys said it with 17 stab wounds Mm -hmm. and her throat being cut, it does seem very impassioned and a crime of passion, but a lot of the I guess, theories of those injuries was that her attacker came at her from behind, which I find fascinating because in my mind and generally when I'm thinking of these crimes of passions, yes, there's overkill, but I think it generally happens face to face. And so I thought that was interesting. I think that it may have happened in a vehicle that that she got Mm -hmm. into the car of somebody she knows, because if she didn't know and the person was pulling her into the car, there would have been more of a commotion and there were witnesses around. Well, it is theorized, too, because of the length of time from where she was last seen. Right, to get two miles away. Right. So I think she got, my theory is that she got willingly into the car, and which also is another thing that the police might have put out at the time, that if somebody could have had blood in their car, 
which would have been another thing to put out to the public because that could have been somebody could have said that was from something else but i would assume there would have been blood in the car if this right. happened in a car which mm -hmm. true but but i think we have to work with what they had at that point and what they had were the witnesses who reported the crime they also mm -hmm. had someone had seen and i'll read from the report it says that witnesses saw a tan or brown van stopped in the roadway facing east immediately adjacent to where Suzanne was found. There was also description of a man in his 20s or 30s with an athletic build, well-groomed hair, dark pants, and a loose-fitting greenish jacket running like his life depended on it in the opposite direction from where Suzanne Jobin had been killed. So mm -hmm. a guy of very similar description and he's now known as sort of the green jacket killer very close by the crime scene of suzanne's death he stops in a woman's window and he kind of like leers at her through the window and so a composite sketch of this man was drawn up and like i said he becomes known as the green jacket killer and we'll talk a little bit more about it when we go through our suspects that we and, have. and obviously that's going to be etched in your mind because I know if I were driving down mm -hmm. the street by myself and all of a sudden I see a man running like his life depended on it, mm -hmm. who then glares into my window. Yes. His face would be forever in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so they have this composite sketch of a possible suspect. But again, we'll see what they do with this. <laughs> it's also hard, I feel like, around a university when you have so many young people and people who may act kind of out of character to look at suspects in the same way you mm -hmm. might in another place. Mm -hmm. That's true. And this is, we should say that this area, which is Edge Hill and Allison, you probably know the cross street of where Jobin was found, stabbed. I know it's Edge Hill Street. It's a very wealthy neighborhood in New Haven. Right. New mm -hmm. Haven is a fairly mm -hmm. dangerous city. We know this, especially at that time. But this was a very wealthy neighborhood. Yeah, Where, it was Edge Hill and East Rock Roads. That's right. Yeah, yeah, East Rock Road. That's right. This case, you guys, is such a troubling case on so many different levels to me. The brutal murder of Suzanne, first and foremost, and most importantly, and then a very, very strange investigation into, if I can call it that, into the case in general, which included botched evidence, a very blindered investigation by the police. So let's just go through some of the things that were and weren't done. One thing we should mention too, by Suzanne's body, they find a fresca bottle mm -hmm. that's like in the bushes that has Suzanne's fingerprints on it. So we know that at some point, this fresca bottle was in Suzanne's possession. Right. And this is not something that's commonly sold in the area. Mm -hmm. And I think that key detail says a lot because when Peter Stein ran into her minutes before, she only had a few papers in her hand. She did not have that he saw anyway, this fresca bottle. And so that kind of leads law enforcement investigators to later be able to figure out where she had purchased this fresca bottle. That's true. Possibly, as we'll see, because there's that there was one store in that area that sold that, but we don't even know if she bought it from that particular store. That's true. Well, because the police never went and they did actually have surveillance and they have video there, but the police never took it. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. But anyway, we can get into that. Yeah. So let's what's next is sort of the, the investigation and how that 
unfolded. Like I had said, they found this Fresca bottle. There's a, a market in that area near where Suzanne's body was found. It's a, a market called Krausers. They never went to the store because this is the only place that sells Fresca in that area. They never went to the store. They never questioned them. They never looked for camera footage. There was also DNA that was found under Joven's fingernails. They waited years to test this. And when they did, the scrapings ended up matching someone that was working for the lab. The brown van that was seen near Joven, like I had said, it was parked adjacent to where Joven was found. They didn't canvas the area. They did not look for a van. They did not release this information to the public. There were just some things that the police did that just did not make sense to me. And apparently this was a troubled time for the New Haven police. It was also a troubled time for the lab as well. The lab, I looked it up, they lost their accreditation in 2011. They got it back in 2012, but there was a backlog of cases in the Connecticut crime lab. And what they were doing is they were not working on cases. They were actually working on private cases and relegating the other cases on the side. So there was this backlog of cases for years and years and years. Evidence just sat there untested. This is just very bizarre to me. And I usually defend law enforcement, and this is indefensible. But we covered the Annie Lee case, another Yale case where they were criticized because the case got so much attention and so much law enforcement. And it just amazes me, especially this being a Yale case, that this was so botched. But they did a great mm -hmm. job on the Annie Lee case. They did case. do a great job on yeah. the Annie Lee case. But often when you see these cases, especially affiliated with these major universities, they're actually given extra attention. In this case, it just, everything that could have gone wrong, they did wrong. Not only that, but Allison, can you talk a little bit about who they did choose as a suspect and how? Absolutely. You know yeah. So we were talking about the missteps of law enforcement. And here is yet another example. And I think because what I mentioned earlier, because there's no sexual assault, because there's still jewelry on her, as we discussed, it seems a crime of passion. And so they're thinking, okay, well, we've got to find who could be responsible. Who did she have a beef with? Was there any sort of disagreement? And the only name that's coming up once law enforcement really starts their investigation and talking to her friends and family is Suzanne Joven's thesis advisor, Professor James Vandeveld, who she met with on that final day of her life. And, you know, Vandeveld himself, and he's, I guess, an oddity in terms of viewing him, I guess, in my mind as necessarily a murderer and why they kind of honed in on him. He was a Yale grad himself. He had his PhD in international security studies. He was well-respected. He worked for the Pentagon and the State Department. He had top secret security clearance. I mean, this was not somebody who was just Joe Schmo off the street. And his classes were so popular there at Yale that I read that people would actually have to apply to, and I, I don't know if that's common in Ivy League schools, but I think I read there were like 169 students who wanted to be in his class of 40 spots. Wow. Yeah. And of course, Suzanne was one of them. And they originally had this really good working relationship because 
she was interested in the same things that he was. But that relationship, and I think this is why originally the friends and family brought up Vandeveld's name to law enforcement, because their relationship did seem, and it was a professional relationship, law enforcement kind of looked into that. It was strictly professional. But as her thesis advisor, she kind of wanted a lot of feedback, and she felt like he wasn't giving her senior thesis the attention that it needed. And so she had spoken to her friends. She was complaining about not feeling supported, that he wasn't interested. She had complained to her family. They had mentioned his name. And so even though you have very little really physical evidence, because as you guys mentioned, the DNA under Suzanne's fingernails ends up being a contamination from the lab. We have a partial palm print on the Fresca bottle. But despite all of that, it's like law enforcement were eagle-eyed focused on Vandeveld. And I guess I really... yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I really struggled with trying to figure out why. And one fabulous article in Vanity Fair by Susanna Andrews, she kind of talked a little bit about one rumor or accusation against Vandeveld, and that was he had temporarily taken a position in California. He had just recently come back to Yale the semester that this case happened. And He had rekindled a relationship with a past girlfriend, and there was a rumor that she said that he was harassing her, though I couldn't find anything. There was no report filed. He has always denied it. And so I think you know how the rumor mill works. It's like the court of public opinion. You hear a rumor, and that becomes it. And so here's Jim Vandeveld, who was this highly esteemed professor with all of these accolades. And now everyone is looking at him as this murderer, derelict. And Yale responds in just as atrocious of a way, I think, as law enforcement did. And they said, well, we're canceling all of your classes for next semester. And you shouldn't be back on campus because you're a distraction. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't support him at all. Not only that, the police actually ended up, his classes got canceled and then he got a new position somewhere. They went out of their way Mm -hmm. to go Mm -hmm. to the new job to tell them to like basically Mm -hmm. a smear campaign. Like if you guys are so backlogged and so busy, you have time to go and do this. And my problem, and I think Stephen Pacheco said this on, and I quoting him, basically, I think he does an excellent, excellent job on his podcast, Trace Evidence, really covering this case. But it's very true. They find their suspect, and then they try to get the evidence to match it, Mm -hmm. rather than going Mm -hmm. from the evidence and then developing suspects from that. That's my issue with this case. Right. Yeah. And of course, Maggie doesn't know the details of this case. But What they're talking about with trying to make the evidence fit Vandeveld is we have the one eyewitness who saw Suzanne walking down the street and saw the blonde gentleman with glasses Mm -hmm. dressed very nicely behind her. And really, the extent of her description is a blonde man with glasses. It's extremely vague. But she sees Vandeveld on the news because he's being interviewed and she's like, oh, my goodness, this guy fits my description. And what's hard for me to swallow with that is so do so many other people. 
Absolutely. You know, right. and even when eyewitness mentioned seeing a red car and I read that law enforcement actually took that witness and they were like, I think they asked them 14 separate times. Are you sure it wasn't a red Jeep Wrangler? Because yeah. that's what Vandeville drove. And and she said, no, it was a small red car. It wasn't a Jeep Wrangler. And she just kept denying it. And they kept showing her pictures of Vandeville. And they were like, are you sure this isn't the man who you saw driving it? And that witness is like, no, that's not who I saw. You're right. I think they just kept trying to get something to stick. Yeah. But then we have Billy, who's the other, they've never named him publicly. He goes by Billy, which I find interesting that they've protected. He has since committed suicide, but they've but protected. What do you explain to the listeners who Billy well, is? Well, Billy but... was a grad student in Yale in the architecture program who was, I would say, had some mental illness, some mental problems. And a man who was a documentary filmmaker named Giles Carter had reported to the investigators that he believed Billy was involved because right around that time, he had gone off his meds. He had started talking about the fact that he was obsessed with the Suzanne Joven case. He was ranting and raving about them not catching him. So he was talking about it. He clearly had an obsession with it. He had a longstanding problem with women. He, al- he also bore resemblance to the composite. To the green jacket. Right. Yeah, composite. So, and it's interesting that law enforcement protected his identity mm-hmm. while outing. Right, know, Vanderbilt. Out of, right. Right. So uh, Billy it's just my opinion, is somewhat of a red herring because it's very difficult to know. Now, this obsession went on. There was mental illness. He had been committed. So we have somebody who's very troubled before Suzanne's death and afterwards. And afterwards, he does commit suicide in a very bizarre way where he drives Mm -hmm. his car into traffic and then kind of gets out of the car and walks into traffic. So he's very troubled. So it's very difficult to know if he's involved or if he's just mentally disturbed and has latched on to this case. And since the DNA has been so botched, it's very difficult. And I think that Billy's existence may cause troubles in any type of further investigation because it could create reasonable doubt when somebody else is indicted. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I think several people, Carter included, actually wrote basically a report, a theory of all the reasons that they believed that Billy should be considered much more seriously as a suspect in this case. They did it and they did it in defense of Mm -hmm. Vander because it was an 11 page report of all the different reasons they thought that he should be seriously considered. And law enforcement, we don't know what else they know, but they did not consider him a suspect. They've protected his name and identity. So we really don't know that much about him. But I do find it very interesting that they have gone to such lengths to protect this person and then gone out of their way to ruin another person's reputation. Right. But Vandervelt actually got his reputation back. There was a lawsuit with Yale for an undisclosed amount with the New Haven police. Police, like he yeah. Did, he did prevail, but if forever. Yeah, oh, right. he's a victim here as well of a botched investigation, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I started looking into this case, and I am not saying that I believe that this following person I'm going to mention is a viable suspect for Suzanne Joven, but I just did want to talk about it. 
because there were actually two serial killers in Connecticut operating at the same time. There was a guy named William Devin Powell, and there was also somebody who has not yet been identified, and that's the Root 8 killer. So the Root 8 killer, an identity has not been found for them. But Powell is kind of interesting because even though he's from Virginia, he was up in the Connecticut area and actually found a court document which listed his address in Harlington, Connecticut. And this was two years prior to Suzanne's death. So in 1996, Powell had some kind of footprint about 40 miles away from New Haven. He also happened to own a brown van. Powell was eventually caught in 2004. He was convicted on seven murders of women. And I'm not saying Powell, I don't know. It's just odd to me that this man had a van. He was, as far as I know, in the area. Now, he could have been incarcerated. There could have been some reason why they did not link her murder to Powell. But again, there are certain, in doing some research into both the Route 8 killer as well as William Devon Powell, there's also an unsolved Route 8 killing that I believe Powell would be an excellent suspect for. Did he Uh, have a particular way that he killed his victims? Well, here's the thing. He actually did not. For the most part, he would rape and strangle his Mm -hmm. victims. A lot of them were found behind a shopping mall in this particular area in Connecticut. However, they found a bloody knife in Mm -hmm. his van. They Mm -hmm. also found evidence of other murders in his van. None of them have been solved. So with these cold cases, particularly, I think just kind of like sometimes taking a bird's eye view of what was going on in Connecticut at that time, fairly near that area, because you have this irrational, violent crime that happens. So in a way, I think you have to look outside of the box to see what else is going on. Now, again, I couldn't figure out whether Powell was still incarcerated at that time. I'm not saying he's the person. What I'm saying is that I think with a more thorough investigation in this case, I think it can still be solved. One -hmm. question I had on this case was the palm print that's found on the Fresca bottle. Did they ever pull DNA from that? That's contact DNA. She touched that bottle, I'm sure, shortly before her death. And so whosoever palm print is on that, and I'm hoping it's not some tech who just picked the bottle up. Because why won't they test that? Do we know the results of that? And I think it's something that you had said, Allison. There's all kinds of Mm -hmm. technology now where you could could do a Parabon recreation Mm -hmm. from that Mm -hmm. DNA and get a picture Mm -hmm. of what the person looked like. Yeah, this is a case that's... Ready yeah. to be reopened and yeah, right, again. yeah, yeah. And we talk about Othram as well. David and Kristen Middleman are heading that uh, the program, and with their forensic genealogy and the genetic sequencing, they've taken degraded DNA from a case in 1881 mm-hmm. and kind of re-genetically modified to where it looks like you've just taken a cheek swab yesterday. Wow. And so I know that if they were to take on this case, they could figure out what I find interesting about this palm print. And obviously, you know, we've mentioned a couple of theories and there are even more 
theories that point away from who police honed in on as a suspect. But what I find, I guess, fascinating about this is, yeah, we've got this DNA. And yet when a couple of, I think they were documentary filmmakers, were interested in covering this case, they filed a Freedom of Information Act request and a judge actually denied them, Hmm. basically citing that some of the evidence that would be revealed in it could make for, I guess, a prejudiced jury. And so I I feel like they're prejudiced because they're already pretty much sold on the fact it's one man that it clearly is not. I mean, that's a fair point, right? Exactly. And prejudice for what, some future? Maybe against the police. Yeah, yeah. 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 This is where I have a really hard time. I think if a case has gone cold because of a botched investigation, Mm -hmm. there should be, I totally understand and respect law enforcement Mm -hmm. for retaining information that is critical in preserving, let's say, the integrity of a crime scene, for example, if there's some detail that they don't want to release because only the killer would know or something Mm -hmm. like that. I utterly understand that. But at a point where you've got, how old is this case now? It's 24 years old at this point, is it not? I mean, come on. At what point are police departments just allowed to hold on to evidence? They even turned away Henry Lee who basically volunteered his services and said, hey, guys, let me look at the forensic evidence. And it was like, oh, no, thank you. We've got this. But, and yeah. really, I mean, with the with the phenomenon of true crime and podcasts, I mean, cases are getting solved. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. people are becoming sleuths at home. And I agree. I think after a certain period of time, more information should be released because people want to solve these cases. People want to know. And if there's nothing there, it's better to put it out there and let people go at it. Hopefully New Haven PD is doing that. I know that Vanderbilt begged them to like, please pass this on to the cold case division so that they can actually solve this. I feel for Suzanne's parents and for siblings. Mm -hmm. And I just really, my gut says that this could have been solved. And it still can be. I think it still can be with the advances, as Allison mentioned, Mm -hmm. the advances that have been made, there's still probably stuff in the evidence yeah, and I mean, we, we can be right. Yeah, we spoke on the phone about should there be some sort of regulation in place saying, okay, you've got a time frame in I, which I think you, so, yeah. yeah, you solely are working this case, and if you cannot get it solved within that time, then at least if you're not going to share other evidence with the public then at least allow in those outside agencies that can give that fresh perspective. Yeah, exactly. Because there might be something in looking at the serial killer, William Devin Powell, I just thought, I don't have the confidence that at that time that New Haven PD was really crossing the T's and dotting the I's. You need to have that confidence that law enforcement is doing their job, frankly. And that's you know? why they need, a, they need a new fresh set of eyes, a new detective mm-hmm. in there to go through everything. And maybe they have one. Maybe they have one. I hope so. I, I hope, hope so, too. You guys are the cold case experts. Do you think that the Suzanne Joven case can be solved? I do. I think that it's going to take sharing of mm-hmm. her case. I mean, that's always the biggest help. 
in these cold cases is just sharing the story and jogging people's memory. And really, and Maggie can attest to this too, really reinforcing to people that the smallest detail mm-hmm. that you think is insignificant can Absolutely. be monumental. Mm-hmm. It, because it might corroborate something that mm-hmm. someone else has come forward saying. And right. in cases like this, which you all have already mentioned, like obviously the investigation wasn't done very good. This case is been called now for 24 years so what is the harm in releasing even if it's just a tidbit of information to get people talking about it again and remembering that night you have to keep people focused on it and remembering her or it's just going to continue to sit cold when with all these witnesses and potential dna and surveillance footage that's not been looked at we should be able to find out who killed her yes Absolutely. And, you know, just to go back to Suzanne, because the thing that really struck me in researching this case is that here she was, she had filled out grad school applications. She was on her final draft of her thesis, and she still shows up for this best buddies pizza Mm -hmm. party Mm -hmm. and puts it on, cleans up, drives people home from it. It's like, that's the kind of person she was, it seems to me. And this has brought her to life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think in all of my research as well, that's the kind of image I had of Suzanne in my mind is exactly what you did. And even her friend said she wasn't interested in a career to make money. She wanted to be influential and help people. And I think the most heartbreaking thing about this case to me is when I think about Suzanne as a person is one thing that her parents actually said in the Vanity Fair article. They told Vanity Fair, we try to encourage self-confidence in our daughters to the extent of recognizing their worth and capabilities and exerting their rights while avoiding arrogance. And we encourage them to never feel limited by their sex. And that's exactly what parents need to be teaching. And I think that's what was so heartbreaking for me is that this woman who she's so driven and she's so caring and that she would be the victim. Absolutely. I mean, we have daughters and I have a daughter close to that age and it's so tragic. The innocence of that age and the newness of discovering the world and just to have that taken. And it's so tragic and I'd like nothing more than to have some justice for her family. Mm-hmm. and take a killer off the street mm-hmm. or at least find out who they are. Yeah. By May 24th, the rest of Suzanne Joven's graduating class were in their black caps and gowns on the New Haven Green. Diplomas were conferred. Celebrations were about to ensue, but the empty seat where Suzanne would have been seated was on the mind of many. To honor her, she was given a degree that day and classmates placed a black stone as a memorial in Davenport Courtyard in a flower bed. But her story isn't over because her family and friends still have no more answers today than they did then. There is still so much information that law enforcement needs. Specifically, they still need to ID the person who borrowed the GRE materials. Additionally, the couple who had been out walking, who heard the screams, found Joven and called 911, actually had a driver by stop to ask if they needed help. The driver's offer was captured on the 911 call, so police would like to speak with that person to ascertain if they witnessed anything pertinent to the investigation. They're also still looking for a taxi passenger who took a cab on December 4th, 1998, and was picked up around the 333 to 337 area of Blatchley Avenue, to New Hallville section of New Haven around 9.30 p.m. The taxi driver 
heard a man and woman arguing and law enforcement are seeking this individual to corroborate details. The passenger was described as a black woman in her late 30s or 40s wearing a healthcare worker's uniform. And finally, police also still want corroboration on any detail concerning the man seen sprinting past motorists near Whitney Avenue and Huntington Street. Of continued focus on the case, the Suzanne Joven homicide investigation team wrote, quote, we want to hear from anyone who has heard something, seen something, or who may even have repressed the knowledge of something that could be related to the murder of Ms. Joven. Do not assume that someone else has already provided the information. Even if you've already made a call in response to previous requests for information, you should do so again so that the team may follow every possible lead, end quote. Witnesses or anyone with information about the case is asked to call the tip line at 1-866-623-8058 or send an email to Joven, that's J-O-V-I-N, dot case at ct dot gov. Thank you so much, you guys. And, and like we've said, if you have any details about the Joven murder, any insights, please contact us. Podcast can do a great deal of good. Just look at Adnan's case. That was all generated from a podcast, and that got him some justice. Let's do some good here. Let's warm up a cold case and get this thing solved. And also, please hold on, because we're going to play the trailer for Coffee and Cases. And again, thank you so much to Allison and Maggie. Greetings from the Bluegrass State. That's Kentucky, if y'all didn't know. We want to tell you about the hottest new podcast on the block, Coffee and Cases. If you fancy yourself an at-home detective. If you find yourself yelling at the TV during that new true crime documentary. Then you, my friend, are a certified sleuth hound. Just like us. On Coffee and Cases podcast, you'll hear about the missing, the murdered, and the unsolved. But the cases you've rarely, if ever, heard about. All from the perspective of two teacher friends, rule followers, and self-proclaimed scaredy cats. Join me, Allison, and me, Maggie, each week as we take on cases that are often overlooked but are screaming for justice. Finally, a true crime podcast where you don't have to monitor the foul language. Coffee and Cases is a true crime guilty pleasure that you don't actually have to feel guilty about. Check out Coffee and Cases every Thursday for a new episode on your favorite podcasting app. <laughs>